Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore, and co-hosting today with me is Jeff Fry. Jeff, thanks for co-hosting. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And today we've got Dr. Jay Wiles on the show, and Jay is a super experienced podcaster, almost needs no intro if you're listening in the podcast world and looking at HRV and stuff. But Dr. Jay, thanks for joining us. Hey, man. It's cool. I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. I've been waiting for this one for a while, considering this is my favorite area of discussion. Well, thank you. And and I think it's pretty timely, too, because, you know, for folks listening, um, you know, you can Google around for uh, Dr. J on uh, uh, and you'll find him talking about HRV in various places. But recently, uh, with all the stuff going on in the world and all the different things that everyone's been juggling, um, Jay, you published a podcast on your own podcast talking about things that you've been doing to kind of work with your breath and build resilience and stress. And, uh, that all kind of came out of your own personal journey in combination with what you do as a clinical health psychologist and a health coach working with clients, everything from elite athletes to, you know, kind of everyday people looking to improve themselves or, or, uh, perform better in life. Is that, is that kind of accurate about what you've been up to lately? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it kind of shifts and, you know, transforms into new things. I feel like every single week, but I think, you know, there's kind of like this basic platform that I run on, which is really learning how to become uh, more stress resilient, um, learning how to teach the nervous system. And I do use that word teach, um, very purposefully or train the nervous system is another good word, uh, just to become more resilient to stress. And, you know, during this time, and, and when we speak of time, obviously we're talking about, uh, COVID-19 and kind of the physical separation from everybody, but also too, um, you know, just kind of the high likelihood, to be honest, of pretty much, you know, the listeners on here or myself or you guys catching this thing um, prior to any type of vaccine, uh, there's, there was a lot of consideration for, okay, so how do I strengthen my immune system? And so from that, I started kind of scouring the research and I always kind of came back to the same thing, which was exciting for me because it was all about stress resilience, um, managing the immune system from an immunological standpoint, but also managing it from a hormonal standpoint, from a metabolic standpoint, and then most, I think, importantly, from a psychophysiological perspective. And so that just had me doing a little bit more deeper digging into this area. I was already doing a lot of things um, in, in the field of psychophysiology and HRV training, but I kind of I guess you could say turned it up a little bit, um, kind of turned the switch in a different direction. Um, and so it's been kind of a a fun pursuit for me, uh, but also one where I've just learned a lot in the past year, honestly. That's awesome. And Jeff and I are excited to dig in. And I think, you know, Jeff, you want to kick us off with some, some questions, start picking uh, Dr. J's brain a little here? <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so, Dr. J, I hope you don't mind if I call you Dr. J. Um, yeah, let's uh, just do J. That'll that'll keep it really easy. J, that that's that's even easier. That, now we have a <laughs> yeah. Jeff, J, and Jason on the podcast. So, um, I guess my question for you is: uh, I know you've done a lot of clinical work with uh, clientele, with patients, um, uh, surrounding all different sorts of things: HRV, breath work, HRV biofeedback. We're very interested in all three of those things. So. I wonder if you could get us started by talking about some what have been some of the most effective interventions for improving HRV that you've worked with people on. Yeah, so you know, I, I I'm I'm big into the world of health and fitness, and you know, I would say that many individuals kind of use this term biohacker. And so like Ben Greenfield and I, when we do our podcast, we kind of get these questions all the time about biohacking. And I, 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 I'm okay with that term. But one of the problems that I see so often is that people see it as something interventional as a basics. Uh, and when I, what I mean by that or foundation, uh, what I mean by that is basically that these individuals are looking to integrate kind of uh, these biohacks, technology, kind of like these more new wave things and order to uh, increase stress resilience and to modifying their psychophysiology. 
And the main problem is, is that these individuals would just introduce these things without kind of managing their basics. And I always tell my wife, like our kind of uh, statement, whenever I say something kind of crazy of the new things I want to try, my wife always looks at me and she's like, basics before biohacks, Jay, basics before biohacks. And it's so true because we can kind of get caught up into, okay, what's the newest technology? What's the newest interventional kind of strategy for modifying and modulating HRV? And the biggest problem with that is that we can really kind of get caught up without having kind of really these basics in these the putting in the work, if you will. And so, you know, one of the things that I will say is, is when I introduce kind of new ways of modulating HRV to my clientele, to my athletes, to whoever I'm working with, we start with the foundation of stress resilience. So basically, like, where is your stress level at right now? Like, are you kind of walking around through life and, you know, kind of nothing but paras- sorry, sympathetically driven? Like, is the gas pedal down to the floor, like in every waking moment? If that's the case, if we introduce, you know, some of these biohacks, let's say we, you know, we do, you know, like uh, cryotherapy, we do something like an Apollo band or new calm, or, you know, one of these technologies, it's just not going to work well for you. So let's go to the basics. So what are the basics? The basics are learning three different components, how to modulate biomechanics of breathing. So how do we breathe properly from a physiological perspective? We change the physiology of breathing or the biochemistry of breathing. And then the last thing that we do is we modulate the cadence of breathing or the respiratory rate. So how fast are we breathing? And these are kind of like the core basics of stress resilience, in my opinion. Like there's a lot of other things that we can add on, but this is where I tell people to start from the very, very beginning. Learn how to breathe properly using correct biomechanics. Understanding biochemistry of breathing is extremely important from an HRV modulation standpoint. And then also, many of your listeners will probably already know, cadence. Um, So how fast are you breathing? And we can find what's called a resonant frequency rate, um, which if your listeners aren't familiar with, I'm sure they are because I know you guys have it recently built into your app. This is just a breath rate that is going to optimize heart rate variability. So I know that was a little bit long-winded. But that's where I start with everybody is that we hit on those three kind of basic foundations before we jump into anything else, before we do anything related to exercise, to diet, to, um, you know, biohacking technology. That's where I start. Yeah, that's great. I I love that. And what I really want to, I think, pick at first is uh, those three things you mentioned, the biochemistry, the biomechanics and the cadence. Um, You may have used a different word for, for cadence. I'm not sure. But what I wanted to ask is, I think we focus a lot on the biomechanics and cadence. Um, and I think a lot of people, that's kind of the easier things to focus on. Um, but I think the biochemistry is a little bit more subtle and a little bit um, overlooked. Do you think we could unpack the biochemistry of breathing a little bit more, your philosophy around it and, and why you found it so important? Yeah, absolutely. I'll kind of give a background on where this came from. So these three components that I mentioned um, actually come from the work of a guy named Patrick McCune. Patrick McCune um, is 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 a great dude from Ireland uh, who wrote a book called The Oxygen Advantage. And The Oxygen Advantage, probably over the pet course of the last year and a half or so, has been my hands down my favorite book, the one that I've recommended to most people, because it assesses those three components. And you're right, the listeners here are probably very familiar with with the biomechanics of breathing, you know, lateral expansion of the ribs, diaphragmatic breathing, um, very familiar with kind of lowering it to that respiratory rate of about six and a half to as low as four and a half breaths per minute. Somewhere in there is normally where people's uh, resonant frequency rate is. But the one that kind of uh, gets overlooked by many individuals, and I won't even say it's overlooked, they just maybe maybe don't know that it's out there, is how do we modify the biochemistry of breathing? And so in Patrick McCune's work, The Oxygen Advantage, and I really would recommend that people get, uh, grab that book if they have not, um, he utilizes kind of like a modified form of buteco breathing. Now, buteco breathing um, is really all about light breathing, light breathing being not breathing in with force, but breathing very lightly in order to increase a state of air hunger. And what that is, is it's just actually initiating what we call a hypercapnic state. A hypercapnic state just means 
means that we have a little bit more uh, CO2 hanging around. And what we know is that when we're in a stress response and when we're breathing really fast, when we're breathing clavically or thoracically from the chest, the problem is, is that we are actually over oxygenating. And, the, and when I say over oxygenating, I mean that we are hyperventilating um, so much that we are actually getting oxygen levels up way too high. Um, but it's not being utilized very effectively because CO2 is being expelled way too fast. So anyway, I've heard a lot of people say like when they put on an SpO2 monitor, um, they'll see, you know, that normally we need to be anywhere from about 95 to 98% of SpO2 or saturation of blood oxygen and hemoglobin. And the problem is, is that when we start to hyperventilate, uh, then what we end up doing is we actually go above 98 to 99 or 100. And then if you pass out because you're breathing too fast, then you can actually drop really, really low, really quickly. And so what ends up happening or what I teach people to do is actually learn how to become more or to become less sensitive to the effects of CO2. Because for a lot of people, if they try to hold their breath um, after they expel air, they're probably not going to be able to hold their breath very long. For many people, it's generally generally under 20 seconds. And when people are uh, unable to hold their breath longer than 20 seconds after they've exhaled, you exhale and then hold your breath, then that is typically a sign of dysfunctional breathing. And when individuals have, have kind of these symptoms of dysfunctional breathing, then they're not going to be able to optimize their regulatory systems of their nervous system as easily or more effective. So I'm all about how do we optimize that? And one of the ways we optimize that is we create this state of air hunger. Now we learn, we teach the individual how to become less sensitive to the effects of CO2. Why? Why is that important? Well, uh, CO2 is kind of deemed to be this waste product. It was just something that we expel. It enters into the air and then it kind of, you know, nature does uh, with CO2 uh, with what nature does, which is a great and that's that's kind of partially correct, but it's not the full story. What we actually know about CO2 is that CO2 works as the key to unbinding or unbinding oxygen from hemoglobin molecules. This is what's called the Bohr effect. And, and, and if CO2 is not utilized effectively, if there's not enough there for it, then oxygen isn't able to unbind from uh, hemoglobin molecules to be utilized within the intracellular fluid or within our mus muscular cells. And so uh, therefore, we, we just have ineffective uh, oxygenation. Because oxygen obviously is important, but in order to utilize oxygen more effectively, we need CO2. So this is why I teach people to create much more sense of an air hunger through light breathing. So very light breathing. And one of the examples that I use is breathing through the nostrils. And, and, and this is, I use it, but I got this from Patrick, I should say, <laughs> disclaimer, uh, is that uh, is breathing through the nostrils so lightly um, as if you were to not move the nostril hairs inside of the nose. And when you start to do that at first, it's a it's fairly uncomfortable. Um, it's because and the reason it's, it's uncomfortable is because we're very sensitive to the effects of CO2 before we start practicing this. And a lot of people, if they're watching their heart rate variability, you know, via you know a, a chest strap or if they have some other device that they're using, they'll see their heart rate variability start to plummet. I mean, it will plummet way down. So if you start off at like let's say an RMSSD of 50, I've seen people plummet down to you know into their 20s. Um, and, and, and they get nervous about that because they think, oh my goodness, what's going on? But actually what's end up happening is that you be becoming, um, uh, having this air hunger, becoming more or less sensitive to CO2, um, which is much more of a longer term thing. That process in and of itself is a, is a pretty heavy stressor on the body. The body essentially thinks you're drowning. Your head's being held underneath water. So your sympathetic nervous system is going to kick into high gear and you're going to see heart rate variability go down. However, what people tend to notice the more and more they practice this, the less and less they become sensitive to CO2, the longer they're able to hold their breath, actually, they see heart rate variability start to skyrocket, start to go way up. And the reason is, is because they're able to utilize oxygen much more effectively, and they're becoming a lot more resilient to the stressor that is holding their breath or having that state of air hunger. So this is why um, biochemistry is so incredibly important. It's because if we learn how to breathe properly in order to affect change in biochemistry, then we're going to affect change in our psychophysiology. And, and again, this, I always tell people, be careful initially because you're going to, it's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable and it's going to, and you're going to see numbers, HRV numbers transiently drop. But then the more and more you try this, the more and more you'll, you'll build resilience and you'll see those numbers start to go way up.
That's awesome. And, uh, you know, that's some, that does sound so counterintuitive to what you might think. And, uh, you know, a lot of those, a lot of what you said basically being like, you know, light breathing seems like something that is counterintuitive when people are often kind of thinking, oh, I should be doing like more, uh, forceful breathing in a, in a sense, when you say, take a deep breath, people are often thinking, you know, I want to make some, an audible noise almost when you exactly. take that deep breath. And, uh, and there's, you know, there's places for that, uh, as well, I'm sure, or I'd be curious of your opinion on, mm-hmm. on that. But, um, you know, real quick though, from a practical perspective, when people start practicing this is, you know, forgive me if you already mentioned this, but how, quickly do should people usually expect to feel some type of progress and and I think one thing just prefacing that is that I really appreciate you kind of mentioning that you know this isn't something you're just going to say oh okay yeah and I'm just going to become you know hypercapnic right now and just go all out and experience some results it does sound like it takes some practice mm-hmm. um you know, how long do people typically practice before they start to see or feel some results? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's some great points. It really varies, honestly. Uh, one of the things that Patrick McCune always has people do before they start uh, kind of this practice is he has them, um, uh, uh, I guess, assess what's called the BOLT score. And what a BOLT score is, it's called a body oxygen level test, body oxygen level test. And basically, this is just a simple breath hold test. Um, so it's you expel all of the air, you take a normal breath in, you take a normal breath out. So no deep breath in, deep breath out. So normal breath in, normal breath out, plug the nose um, so that you can prevent any air from entering into your lungs. And then you just time the number of seconds until you feel your first desire to breathe. You don't exercise willpower and then just like, uh, you know, hold your breath until you pass out, but just until you feel that first sensation to breathe. So it might be kind of like the constriction of your airway or like the need to swallow. And then you kind of see how many seconds you are there. And that's when I was kind of talking about that 20 second rule. And if people are under 20 seconds, then what they're going to find is, is when they start to breathe in this more um, air hunger state and this more hypercapnic state, uh, it's going to feel a lot more stressful for these individuals. Um, but uh, And I'm, I'm going to give a disclaimer there in just a second, but uh, I wanted to kind of finish that thought. Uh, it will feel stressful for these individuals. And what I've seen typically is that someone over 20, but especially over 40, which a lot of people, unless they have training, aren't normally holding their breath over 40 with the standards that I just gave for that Bolt score. These individuals are going to have a lot easier time with this hypercapnic training. My disclaimer that I was going to mention, though, is that don't think that you have to be or you should be some uh, Olympic athlete in order to you know, have that 40 score. I've seen individuals who are Olympic athletes and they have a score of 10 or 11 or 12. And I've seen kind of the everyday individual um, who has a score of, you know, 30 to 40. Um, It it may not be that often, but you can see it. So there's really, um, there's so many variables that are involved in kind of that score. But when we talk about progress, how long should it take to see progress? I've seen people in as little as is two to three weeks, see some significant movements um, in a forward direction on their breath hold score or on that bolt score. Um, When it comes to discomfort, you know, I've been practicing this now for, Uh, probably about a year and a half or so. And I still experience discomfort. And that's actually one of the points. Uh, One of the points is to kind of push yourself a little bit so that you do have that state of um, discomfort because of the the slight state of air hunger. Uh, But that is a hormetic stressor. That's a stressor that helps you to rebuild resilience. So it's going to vary, but I just tell people to kind of stick with it. Like if you're a free diver and you do this, like you're going to kill it and it's going to be a great exercise for nervous system modulation but it probably won't be that difficult. If you're someone with asthma, you really need to do something like this, but it's going to be pretty difficult initially. So it's just kind of, you know, with anything, kind of utilize it in moderation, but kind of just work your way up. Utilize that Bolt score. Um, And again, like that Bolt score that I'm mentioning, you can find it like on Patrick's uh, website, oxygenadvantage.com, or just get his book. And that's kind of a great place to start. But, you know, it, 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 it will take some time, but it's not like you have to practice this for years in order to see movement, like let's say in your HRV. And when you're looking for movement in that HRV, is it primarily in the moment or like 
like live or post post or as you see kind of some trending that occurs over time that you're specifically looking for? Yeah, there's, there is an absolute transformation over time. And I'll give you just my own personal example. When I first started doing this type of breathing, this hypercapnic buteco style breathing, or I'll say oxygen advantage protocol, I saw that my HRV would just go down significantly um, during the practice. Um, so I might start off, let's say with an RMSSD value of 70. And then let's say if my LF was in the 2000s, my HF was like, let's say in 1,000, 1,500, I would see it go way down. All of those numbers drop down. My VLF go up. All of those things would happen indicating the sympathetic response. And the problem with that is that at first I thought, well, oh crap, like this is not working for me. I needed to stop. Like I don't need to turn my sympathetic nervous system on further. But then when I would stop the practice, let's say if I practice for you know 10 minutes or so, uh, almost immediately my numbers would jump to baseline. But here's the kicker is that I started to see that 15, 20, 30 minutes after practice, my numbers started to go way up. My VLF would, would bottom out. My LF would raise, my HF would significantly raise, and then my RMSSD values would raise uh, fairly high. And that's when I said, okay, there's something to this. So transiently, this works as a stressor, but in the longer term, this actually is helping to build back resilience. This is an exercise for my nervous system. Just like I would hit the gym, I'm hitting the gym for my nervous system. And then what I notice now, so that's when I started initially. What I notice now is actually really cool is that um, it takes a lot more for me to have a state of air hunger. I mean, I have to kind of work at it a little bit harder, which is not a bad thing. That's a really good thing, but it's almost immediately raising of my HRV. So uh, my body is so conditioned and used to this style of breathing that when I start lightweight breathing and I work again on the mechanic, biomechanics of breathing, biochemistry of breathing, and I slow it down to my resonant frequency rate, my HRV will skyrocket within a matter of 30 to 45 seconds. Um, so it is, it is something that build resiliency in the long term, but do, but do expect that transiently when you first start for there to be kind of some oddities that looks like you're in this sympathetic drive because you are initially, but then you build back to have a much more stronger, resilient parasympathetic uh, 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 modulation on the back end. So I've seen it evolve, but evolve in a really good way. That's awesome. And, and you said that, uh, you know, primarily this is a type of practice that you would recommend for people who are typically more sympathetic driven, who have a little bit more of that kind of natural either. I mean, I guess if you kind of relate it to like layman terms would be like either a type A personality who kind of uh, likes to have like tight control over their situation at all times, kind of has a little bit of a higher baseline level of stress or like somebody who's uh, kind of under a lot of pressure, whether that's from their job or life or relationships or that type of stuff, or maybe even somebody who is experiencing some type of like elevated inflammation in the body from, you know, uh, past choices for diet or nutrition or, um, or even all of these kind of stress related things that we're talking about. Uh, is that is it kind of equally applicable to all these different things or is there certain people or certain things that you kind of look for where this really hits the nail on the head, so to speak? Yeah, I have found this to be the most effective for individuals who kind of have more of like long term, um, uh, I would say light to moderate stress. Um, so that's most of us, I would say that's a bulk majority of people, um, especially in the US, I mean, probably worldwide, but especially in the US. One of the things that I will mention, and it's something that I've seen Patrick has seen as well, is that when we are talking about something, somebody with a significantly high level of anxiety, so let's say they have an anxiety disorder, especially things like PTSD um, or, uh, or any trauma-based anxiety, then I am very cautious with two things. One, creating too much of a state of hypercapnia or air hunger, and then the number two thing would be breath holding. The reason being is because we have seen with individuals who have significant 
significant anxiety, again, like someone with PTSD, diagnosed with PTSD, we can utilize a protocol like this, but we need it modified um, because we do not want to initiate a state of panic, a higher level state of anxiety. Um, that's, that's something that can kind of backfire on us. So we'll modify it for those individuals um, so that we're not breath holding as long and so that we're not creating a long state of air hunger and hypercapnia. But otherwise, this is a good general practice for most individuals. Uh, the people I've seen it uh, kind of like optimize um, would be athletes. Um, so when athletes use this, especially uh, when they are training for, you know, something that's that's pretty physiologically stressful, um, like a marathon, let's say, or for like a CrossFitter for like a Metcon competition, uh, those individuals respond really well to this. But I, I do think this is a protocol that anybody could use. And, you know, I, I consider myself kind of, you know, a, a you know, a, a fitness expert, a health expert, but I'm by no means, you know, a professional athlete. And I found it to be extremely helpful for me in so many different areas. That's great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to jump in real quick. Uh, I had a burning question for you. Sorry. Um, so I'm just so fascinated by your use of this buteco breathing protocol, and I know that you have been, you know, board certified uh, HRV biofeedback practitioner for a long time, and so I, I'm just so curious to know how this protocol fits in with um, more typical uh, breathing patterns like resonance breathing. Uh, and how that fits in with the HRV biofeedback you do with clients. I know you mentioned um, resonance frequency uh, uh, there earlier when talking about uh, the buteco breathing, if I'm not mistaken. So, so how, how do you fit, kind of meld those two together? Yeah, great question, Jeff. I th so what I see this as um, is I see it as a great kind of adjunctive and add-on to a lot of the biofeedback work that I do. So individuals, I'll just kind of give you like kind of if you were to be a client and come in and see me within my clinic, kind of what that would look like. So obviously, let's just say the first session is normally like a 90-minute intake where I get a lot of information from the individual. But then when we start on our biofeedback, one of the first things that I do is I teach functional breathing. So I teach how to breathe properly from a biochemical standpoint, mechanical standpoint, and then a cadence standpoint. And in order to optimize the cadence aspect and, and also to optimize HRV, then we'll do a resonance frequency assessment. So we'll run a 15 minute evaluation looking at different bio, biometrics and biomarkers of HRV and then assess uh, resonant frequency from there. Now, what I do with kind of the Buteco and Oxygen Advantage protocol is that I interweave this into my training. So whereas where I might have just used to, you know, teach bioresonance, um, which is, you know, resonant frequency breathing, and just kind of monitor that, have my client use the feedback on the screen um, to kind of indicate whether or not they were breathing diaphragmatically and whether or not they were kind of following that cadence correctly. I will add on these components and uh, I kind of do it different for, for, you know, for different people. And also too, I have to kind of gauge um, how advanced they are because these are a little bit more advanced skills for biofeedback. Um, they, they certainly are kind of a, 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 an addition to everything that we, that we include in our biofeedback protocols. But I'll just kind of interweave it. So for a lot of people, once they learn resonant, bre uh, resonant frequency breathing, then one of the things that I'll actually have them do um, is I'll have them integrate kind of light breathing, but do it on their resonance uh, 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 within their resonance rate. So let's say the rate six breaths per minute. I'll have them breathe very lightly in order to change the biochemistry in six breaths per minute. Now, one of the things that does happen, I get this question a lot, and maybe your listeners have this question if they're going to try this, is they say, well, when I try to breathe really lightly to have a slight state of air hunger, which remember is the goal of changing biochemistry is just a slight state of air hunger. And, and how do we know that? We know that by when we have kind of that first initial thought of like, oh man, I could take in a little bit more air right now this feels like it's a little bit resisted or light. Like I, I could take a big breath. That's how, you know, you have a, a slight state of air hunger. Um, I, I, I will say that a lot of people do ask, they say, well, if I'm doing that, then I feel like I really need to slow my breath down, lower
lower than my resonant frequency rate. And when we're purely practicing creating a state of air hunger, that's the intent, then you're correct. A lot of people are going to be down like at four and a half breaths per minute, four breaths per minute when they're doing that. And I'm not concerned with that. Our goal isn't to optimize HRV with resonance at that point. Our goal is to utilize oxygen most effectively, which is becoming less sensitive to the effects of CO2. So a lot of people get really confused because they'll say, well, I'm trying to do this, uh, but I can't maintain this light air hunger and resonance breathing rate at the same time. And, And you just have to remember, well, what's the intent? If the intent is to practice resonance, breathe lightly, breathe diaphragmatically, have lateral expansion of the ribs when you're breathing. So utilize the correct mechanics, but follow the cadence of your, of your resonance. Um, the, the main reasons we want to, we want to make sure that we're breathing diaphragmatically, even if we're breathing lightly is because we can get, we're going to get more vagal stimulation. Um, at the uh, at the dorsal as- uh, parts of our uh, lungs, we're going to get more vagal stimulation when we're breathing that way. doesn't necessarily mean we're going to initiate vagal tone. There's a high chance and opportunity for that, uh, but uh, but that's going to give us the best opportunity. So it's, it's, it's really just more intertwined. Um, and so I tell people, like, kind of know what your goal is and what your focus is for that state of practice. Is it to increase HRV through resonant frequency breathing, or is it to increase the state of air hunger to utilize oxygen most effectively? So that's, that's how I integrate it in. It looks very different for different people too. Oh, that's really fascinating. So in, in a way you're sort of, if, if what I'm hearing is correct, you're sort of taking what you've learned from Patrick McEwen's oxygen advantage and applying that to a certain degree to resonance breathing and more traditional HRV biofeedback, but yet um, you're not applying it so much so that it kind of overtakes that those principles of resonance um, resonance breathing, um, and instead you're um, in some cases just sort of setting that aside to, to do as a separate practice in addition to the HRV biofeedback paired with resonance frequency breathing. Is that is mm-hmm. that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good summary. So a lot of it is definitely like an add on or an adjunctive something that we can include. One of the great things that I had happened in this past year. So Dr. Paul Lair, um, who really coined the term resonant frequency, uh, he came out with a paper, I think it was maybe in August or so of last year. And one of the things that he had always kind of said, and like the Institute of Heart Math had always said is that, you know, in order to get kind of true coherence and resonance, we need to have this one-to-one phase relationship between our respiratory rate or what we call respiratory sinus arrhythmia uh, and, and heart rate. So that needed to be kind of like in one-to-one phase in order for us to have an appropriate resonant frequency. Well, in a new research study, he found that that actually wasn't necessarily true. A lot of individuals don't have that one-to-one phase of resonance breathing in order to optimize HRV. And what I found with a lot of individuals is that when we do not have one-to-one phase relationship between breathing and heart rate, so that's kind of like the up and down of breathing and the up and down hills of heart rate uh, when we are breathing, um, uh, when we actually introduce some of these more advanced skills of creating, you know, air hunger of introducing Buteco is that we don't see that face to face one to one relationship, but we see an optimizing of HRV. And so I kind of like combine three different things all into one. And this is why, and this is again, my pitch to everybody, why it's so important to really work. Like if you really want to work on these things to really find someone who is advanced in their instruction and kind of knows their most current research and can teach you how to do it um, in, a, in, a, in a coaching setting. And then you can take like your product, like Elite HRV, which is one that I recommend probably more than just about anything. Uh, you can teach individuals kind of what to look for. Now, when they're training on these devices, uh, what to, you know, what you should and shouldn't be doing, what you should and shouldn't be seeing on the Elite HRV app, and then uh, and use that for your home training. And that's, again, it kind of brings me to another point, which is how important home training is. And, you know, I don't want to like beat a dead horse because I know a, a lot of people talk about the importance of training and practice, but it's so incredibly important. You can't just expect to like do it once a week and then it's just going to you know be life changing. It might change something, um, but it might not become habitual or conditioned, which is the whole point and goal here. Yeah, that's great. And I just want to make one uh, finer point on, uh, on the breathing and then we can, can move on to maybe a different subject, but, but I, I think it's really important for people to sort of understand how your um, philosophy has sort of changed on the deep breathing specifically. And it sounds to me as if, um, you know, 
at one point you were kind of of the opinion that in order to do correct deep breathing, you needed to, you know, like make it big and you, you know, you would hear it. But uh, now it's much more of a light, low and slow breathing that you're, that you're using when practicing either you take a breathing or um, resonance frequency breathing. Is that right? I just want to make sure our listeners get that right. It has significantly evolved. So when I did my first biofeedback training, um, you know, which now I guess would be, whoa, whoa, I'm, I'm looking at my calendar and it's like it's 2021 and that was over a decade ago, which is crazy to me. So when I, when I was first introduced to biofeedback over a decade ago, um, the, 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 my trainer, um, who I was there and again, this was, this wasn't because they were training me incorrectly at the time. They thought this was correct. And unfortunately this is still kind of passed down. I've still seen this in trainings. Um, and I'm going to actually do it so the listeners can hear, uh, basically when we trained, um, and we were following pacers, we were breathing with a semi, I would say fairly correct biomechanics, but the biochemistry was off because we were breathing like this. And a lot of it was in through the nose, out through the mouth. Um, and now for me, it is 100% nasal breathing. Um, so I am always breathing in through the nose. I am always breathing out through the nose. I don't switch my breathing from my nostrils out of my mouth. I'm not saying that's necessar not necessarily a, a bad thing, but if you read a lot of Patrick McCune's work, James Nestor's work, and you look at the science and physiology of nasal breathing, if we want much more of a vasodilative response, which is a widening of the blood vessels, very much more common when we see a parasympathetic response, we see the dilation of blood vessels for more oxygen delivery, then we need to breathe through our nose huh? because it's the largest place for uh, vasodilatory receptors are within our nasal pathways. So I breathe in and out through the nose. That's one major evolution and change is nasal breathing only. I even have a lot of my uh, patients and myself, we mouth tape. So we'll actually put tape over our mouth when we're practicing and when we're exercising and then when we're sleeping in order to maintain much more of that vasodilation that comes through nasal breathing. The other thing is, is light. So that kind of low and slow, like you mentioned, breathing. So nobody hears you. Now you don't even hear yourself breathing. Uh, and so when I teach this, now, when I'm doing a course in heart rate variability training, um, in functional breathing training, um, when you come into a room and we're practicing, you don't hear anybody. It just sounds like, uh, you know, you're just walking into, you know, an empty room and that's, and that's what we want to hear. Now um, that's what we, I guess we don't want to, yeah, I don't even know how to say that. You, you want to hear nothing if that even makes sense. Uh, so yeah, those, those have been the two biggest, uh, areas of evolution, nasal breathing, and then really quiet, low and slow breathing. And th those are, so you know, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned, uh, I loved the term, maybe if I butcher it, you can correct it, but basics before biohacking. Yeah, that's it. And you would couch these breathing techniques as basics. Like it's not a biohack to learn how to breathe correctly and or to breathe in different patterns to mm -hmm. elicit a response from the nervous system. Is that correct? It's a great point to make here. Uh, we are, this is functional breathing. So this is evolutionary based breathing. One of the things that has happened in a very short time period is that we as humans have evolved to breathe dysfunctionally. And it's because the sympathetic nervous system, when it's always on hyperdrive, is going to have us breathe dysfunctionally. During the moment when the mountain lion is chasing you and you need your nervous system to be sympathetically driven, you need to breathe thoracically from your chest because you're going to want to take in as much oxygen as you can in order to get away. You need your heart rate to speed up. Heart rate variability is going to go low. Like these are things that we need to have happen um, because they are protective. The problem though is that this is something that we see get turned on by almost every individual out there and it's never turned off. And so the dysfunctional breathing just stays there and we're breathing in a very improper way. Whereas if you look at the biochemistry and biomechanics and also, I won't say cadence because that, that doesn't qualify for babies, but if you look at the biochemistry and biomechanics of a baby breathing, that's what we're going for. We just need to change the cadence because babies breathe way too fast compared to what we're going to breathe. 
Uh, but we want to breathe like them. We want the belly to go out. We want lateral expansion of the ribs. And then also too, if you look at the biochemistry of a baby, they've actually done studies on this. What we actually see happen, babies who are not very stressed other than when they have to use the bathroom or when, you know, somebody steps on them. <laughs> Hopefully nobody's stepping on them. I was thinking about my son. I have a three-year-old son who loves to step on our uh, nine-month-old uh, and he gets, he gets pretty upset then. Uh, but when you look at the biochemistry of these babies, what actually is happening is that they are a lot more tolerant to the effects of CO2 as we are. Uh, but over time, when we have this kind of constant sympathetic state, this stress, high stress state, high cortisol state that's impacting us, high adrenaline state as well, then we lose um, kind of this sensitivity that we have to CO2 because we're breathing way too damn fast. That's just the problem that ends up happening. So yeah, basics before biohacks, and this is as basic as it gets. This is functional breathing. Uh, and functional breathing just meaning that it serves the function of the body uh, in a way that it should. That's awesome. And what are some of the other, um, you know, breathing is something hopefully everyone does every day and, uh, you know, everyone has access to, you know, what are some other things that you use to kind of move the needle, um, whether they be basics or biohacks, I guess you could always just like caveat which one it is, but, you know, what else are you doing uh, these days to kind of complement all of this breathing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I have like a pyramid system. And when I say a pyramid system, I just mean that, you know, the foundation, the bottom of the pyramid, the largest part that kind of, uh, you know, sets the tone for everything else will be uh, these types of functional breathing patterns. So I dial down the biochemistry, biomechanics and cadence of breathing. Then from that, I can build on my other more foundational areas, which would be things like exercise. And nutrition. So when I say exercise and nutrition, these are very bio-individual. And it's actually one of the things that I have a lot of my clientele doing and utilizing is utilizing things like HRV in order to inform training, especially from an exercise perspective. So I have what's called the 40-20 rule, which means that if uh, individuals wake up in the morning um, and they check their HRV and they look at their morning red uh, readiness score um, on your app, and they see that from their baseline, their RMSSD values are 20% below their normal baseline, then that's kind of a little bit of a red flag to say, okay, might I have been overreaching the previous day and not fully recovered? Maybe I should go a little bit lighter today, kind of subjectively check in. And then if they find that they're 40% below their normal baseline, then that's an off day. That's a relaxation day. That's a day that they're not going to go and do a Metcon. Now, if they're well above their normal baseline, then I'm saying, okay, go push it. Your nervous system is revved up and ready for it. Like I don't want you to get injured. But if it's way low, that's the way to prevent injury is to utilize HRV from that perspective. So that's one thing is exercise. And we've, you know, there's so much great research out there on kind of the particular, you know, means of exercising, what to do and what not to do. I haven't seen really anything that competes, competes with high intensity interval training. Um, that's really kind of the top of my list for enhancing an HRV response. So what you'll see with that style of training, obviously, is that people's HRV will crash when they do a HIT workout or high intensity interval training. And it crashes transiently. And a lot of people um, are in sympathetic drive, you will be in sympathetic drive when you are doing that type of workout. But then that is the one that builds resiliency the most uh, from a literature standpoint, from a research standpoint. Um, so that's kind of the exercise is one thing, nutrition, dialing that in, which is very bio individual. You know, you know, I've seen people thrive on, uh, you know, something that's more of like a paleolithic diet, like a ketogenic diet or carnivore diet, even like it's just really bio individual. So I just say to utilize your biometrics and numbers in order to kind of inform yourself. And then like, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things that are more of kind of like your, I guess you could say intangibles that I think are extremely important. Things like relationships, kind of our social relationships, our spiritual relationships, uh, the practice of gratitude and mindfulness. I think all of those um, are equally as important and a part of the foundation uh, of, of kind of helping us to build resiliency in the nervous system to kind of mend some of those wounds. Um, I think that's uh, another valuable aspect that I put in is daily gratitude practices, mindfulness practices, um, and not even necessarily just like meditation practices for mindfulness, but just being mindful throughout the day, being cognizant and aware of who you are around, um, who you're impacting and who's impacting you, what's impacting you. 
you. And then the last thing would be biohacks. Um, so that's at the top of the pyramid. Um, not saying it's the top because it's the best. It's at the top because it's the cherry on top. It's the thing that you can include at the end once you have kind of like all those foundational basics in play and all of those things are managed well. From a biohacking perspective, there's a lot of things out there that I do. And, you know, I pro we probably don't have enough time <laughs> to go through everything. But, you know, some of the uh, ones that I've seen um, here recently that I've found to be extremely helpful um, is a product called NuCalm. That's N-U-C-A-L-M, NuCalm. I've been using NuCalm now for probably the past year or so, um, which is when I first started uh, kind of using their product and kind of watching HRV results. And, you know, I am, I, I'm a scientist, so I'm, I'm a skeptic, but I'm also very open-minded. I am willing to be a guinea pig. I'm willing to try like just about anything uh, when it comes to biohacking, as long as it's you know, relatively safe for my body. And I'm very, I'm very also cognizant and aware of like how my body responds to things. And, you know, there are some things that are sent to me, kind of just the nature of my job and kind of being in the health and wellness world and in podcasting. And then with my expertise in heart rate variability, I just get sent stuff all the time in the mail and I try it out. And if I really like it, then I'll go and promote it and tell people about it. And if I don't, then, you know, I, I'm, I won't go out and just, you know, smash companies that I don't believe in their product, but, you know, I won't go out there and preach things that I, I don't believe in. Newcom is one of those ones that I came across and I was about as skeptical as it gets. I thought this sounds like a bunch of, you know, woo woo kind of horse malarkey, as we say here in the South. And, uh, and, uh, you know, what it is, is it's basically utilizing bioresonance, uh, through neuroacoustic software. So it sounds kind of like, um, uh, I guess what's a, the thing like binaural beats almost. Um, it's kind of like these musical collections that you use on this app. And then you use a bio signaling disc that goes on your left wrist, uh, which is, um, supposed to uh, result in vagal stimulation and through this process of bioresonance. And, uh, you know, I was skeptical when I first put it on, but the first day I put it on, I think I was so stressed and tired. I just like fell asleep and I woke up and it's supposed to help to kind of recreate sleep in a very short duration. I woke up and, you know, I'm always checking biometrics. So I had my polar H10 on, I had elite HRV running in the background. And one of the first things I saw, um, I tested five minutes pre, and then I, I tested during, and then I tested five minutes post the first time I ever did this device. Uh, the new calm device, I noticed that my heart rate variability during the session immediately went down and then halfway up through the session went way up and stayed way up. And then when I tested post it immediately, I mean, not immediately, but it stayed up higher than my pre baseline. And I said, well, that's interesting. Um, you know, placebos work, so maybe it's just placebo. And then I kept testing day in and day out. And I would see that my heart rate variability would go up during the session and then would stay up after the session. And then I started just to see this trend over and over and over again. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm bought into this and I just keep seeing it happen. And a lot of my clientele see it happen. And you know, the great thing about new calm, is that it was really expensive. It was like five or six grand. And now they do like a monthly service. Um, so it's like 30 or 40 bucks a month. I can't remember what it is, but it's wow. very reasonably priced for everybody now compared to, you know, six grand investment. So that's been probably my major biohack of, of, of 2020. I mean, we'll start, we're starting 2021 now, so we'll see what it'll be this year, but new calm was a really, a, a really good one. And then, you know, I try, you know, a bunch of things here and there, but I don't want to drone on too much. I just thought I'd mention kind of some of the, the, some of my pyramid, if you will. No, that's really helpful. I like how you kind of presented it as a pyramid and, you know, personal anecdote on something like new calm is really valuable actually, because like you said, when you're kind of just browsing and looking for things or you're reading on Reddit or, you know, doing different things as a, as a consumer, you kind of wonder like, you know, what's, what are people actually experiencing when they mm -hmm. uh, try out these different products or, you know, is that something, what should I be looking for, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but anyways, so that, that really helps. And, you know, there's a lot of, like you said, there's, there's a whole rabbit hole now on the internet that you could go down for biohacks and having that oh, yeah. kind of, mentality of framing it like a pyramid and basics before biohacks, I think is really helpful. And these things I have found, you know, can kind of kickstart your progress in some ways and also kind of get you that extra edge when you've kind of addressed some of the basics. But, 
it really doesn't replace the basics. And I think that the good news is um, most people are kind of getting that now. And I think that like even the products, you know, who kind of claim you can do this and it'll change uh, uh, a lot of different things about your physiology or your condition are kind of shying away from this is a silver bullet to solve all of your problems type of language, which is, I think, better for everyone. Yeah, without a doubt. I th- when we get stuck on a singular product or we get stuck on this one, you know, one track mindset, then it's very damaging. It's really, really dangerous. And I see it all the time. And, you know, again, my, my thing is to not bash people, but you see, you know, the food gurus, the nutritionists, they go one way. Uh, you see the exercise individuals and fitness individuals go one way and they kind of sit in that camp and they say like, kind of, this is the answer. This is the response. And I think that there's responses and answers like within all of these domains. And when we start to get at the foundation root cause of what's going on kind of with our, our, our kind of problem set that we're experiencing, um, then we start to see that there's a lot of things that we can take from all of these camps. We have to integrate them in. And then again, once we get the foundations in order and they do become truly foundational and behavior change has occurred um, for good, then we can start to introduce more of these like interventional products and biohack. And what I find is, is that they are going to augment, they're, uh, they're going to be like kind of the, the cherry on top, if you will, to all the things that we're doing for ourselves. That's huge. And I think, you know, this has been, I think we've done a good job kind of bookending this conversation. A lot of times, honestly, I'll take uh, credit for this. I, I can kind of end up leading the conversation in a hundred different directions, but <laughs> I think that like before we dig into another uh, area, which I know that we could tackle a bunch of different things. This is a good place to kind of book in this conversation. And we've already almost killed an hour, which has kind of flown by. So right, absolutely. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and Jay, but before we kind of wrap up too, I want to, uh, at the beginning, we talked about your practice and different things that you kind of do. Where can people like digest more info from you and get more info about what you do and your practice? Yeah. So I've got a, a couple websites that people might be interested in. So my practice, which is located in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, but due to the nature of how I set the practice up alongside with the where we are kind of in, in the today's day and age, I mean, a lot of things I do virtually. And so I do a lot of heart rate variability coaching, a lot of training on functional breathing, kind of all the things that we've discussed here, I do with my practice, which is Thrive Wellness and Performance. And that the website for that is www.thrive-wellness.com. That's thrive-wellness.com. A lot of the other places that you can find me. So my personalized website is drjwiles.com. And then on Instagram, I'm at drjwiles. I post a lot of things on heart rate variability there. A lot of things on biohacking, heart rate variability. Kind of we get into get into the weeds there on my Instagram account. And then also podcasting. So I do co-host the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast. So if you have any questions about heart rate variability or biohacking heart rate variability or any of the things that I talked about here, anybody can submit that to Ben Greenfield Fitness. So just go to bgffitness.com or bengreenfieldfitness.com. Um, I, I co-host that one. And then my own podcast, which is Mind Hackers Radio uh, with Dr. Jay Wiles. So look at that one as well. And, uh, and new episodes are coming on that one as well. So yeah. Uh, that's probably way too many things to kind of give out there, but uh, you, you can find me. I'm out there. That's excellent. Yeah, that's excellent, Jay. Thanks so much. Uh, I, I do want to uh, add on to that, that your Mind Hackers Radio podcast, you did an interview with uh, Dr. Patrick McEwen, who we, we mentioned several times during this podcast, and I found that very informative. And I think a bunch of our listeners who are, you know, their interest is sort of piqued by this conversation. I think they'll do really well to to go check out that episode in particular, as well as your, your, your podcast in general. So, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, uh, thanks. Thanks for that. That's, that's a great podcast to listen to because we take, uh, I think more advanced subject matter, but make it very easy to understand and palatable. And Patrick's really good at that. He's a great teacher. Um, and, and, and so I think that if anybody is interested in that functional breathing aspect of that podcast is a really great place to start. Yeah, that's excellent. And he's got a, 
a uh, beautiful uh, Irish accent to, to boot. That so. he does. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, listen, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. We're going to post all of um, the links that you mentioned, Jay, in, in the show notes. Uh, and you can find those show notes at EliteHRV.com forward slash podcast. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, it's been such a pleasure um, talking to you. It sounds like we have a billion and one other things we could talk about in future episodes. So we'd love to have you on. Um, again in the future, um, if you if you'd be willing, and um, yeah, thanks again so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been a blast, guys. Anytime you guys want me on, just let me know, and I'd love to come back. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, appreciate everybody listening, and um, see you next time. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com slash academy.